Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Angood, President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Association for Physician Leadership, or AAPL. A general surgeon with trauma and critical care experience, the first 15 years of his career were in academia, where he assumed roles as trauma center and surgical critical care director, chief of the division of trauma and critical care, and program director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship. In 2005, he left academia to assume the role of vice president and inaugural chief patient safety officer with the Joint Commission, which led to subsequent roles as senior patient safety advisor to the National Quality Forum, chief medical officer of General Electric Healthcare's patient safety organization, and program lead for patient safety with the World Health Organization. In 2012, he assumed his current role as president and CEO of the AAPL, a professional organization with 10,000 active members across 40 countries and focused on providing leadership education, management training, and career development designed specifically for the physician workforce. Peter, welcome. Well, thank you. I look forward to our conversation today. Where were you born and raised? Well, I'm out of the Canadian system originally. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, but basically was raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in the Midwest. And I always chuckle for myself because for many Americans who are geographically challenged on Canada, I have to tell them that Winnipeg is north of North Dakota. That usually helps them. Was it a fairly quiet environment, relatively rural or suburban? Well, Winnipeg is a town of about 400,000. It's kind of at a central point in Canada, and it kind of grew up as a city being a hub for a connection between the eastern part of Canada and the western part of Canada. And that's just related to the geography of that part of the country. But one of the things that I remember as I was growing up is, well, if there's something else going on in the world, it doesn't seem to be happening in Winnipeg. So that was sort of precipitated my moving on from Winnipeg. But it was a very pleasant and enjoyable upbringing for sure. Fantastic. And what was the composition of your family growing up, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have one sister and a small family overall, not a lot of cousins and all that type of thing as well. Yeah, that small kind of Midwest upbringing. And what did your parents do for a living? My mother was kind of an admin assistant and then a homemaker, as is typical of that generation. And then my father was a government bureaucrat. He spent a lot of time helping develop up community colleges in the Manitoba system, but also got involved nationally in terms of governmental work and trying to evolve the early stage development of what community colleges meant in North America at that time. Did you have any particular hobbies that you pursued when you were growing up beyond, you know, going to school and being a student? Well, I was one of those kids that was always on the different athletic teams. And so all through school, I did a lot of that sort of stuff. I spent a lot of time in my teens in the competitive swimming arena. And then as I kind of got into my older teens, wound up gravitating to the outdoor world. And so spent a lot of time, you know, just doing the typical hiking, biking, canoeing, which you did in the Midwest at that point in time. 
What was your first job growing up? My first job, and the one I sort of kept all through my teens, the Midwest of Canada has a bunch of lakes in that area. So one of the lakes that our family went to, Lake of the Woods, which is right at the junction of Manitoba, Ontario, Minnesota, and North Dakota. And I wound up basically spending all of my summers employed at that boat marina. So it was enjoyable. I learned a lot of cool things about boats and spent a fair amount of time on the water, which was fun. That is nice. What kind of work were you actually doing as a part of that job? Well, at 14, I was just being a boatyard help kind of thing. But as I got to be 16, 17, 18, I sort of progressed. I was doing what was called a lot of rigging of boats, which was the maintenance and installation of windshields and various accessories that boats enjoy and all that stuff. And then as I finished out that summertime work, I actually was service manager for uh, a couple of summers, which was enjoyable and gave me that insight to customer service and being on the other side of that screen that, you know, none of us really particularly enjoy going into the service shop, but it was a good experience. What would you recall as being your first experience as a leader? Oh, gosh, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? I think I probably felt it in the various team sports that I participated with. I had always enjoyed a fair amount of natural athletic talent and My personality was such that for whatever reasons, I oftentimes got to be in some of the leadership roles on the different teams. So you served as team captain? Yeah, here and there. A couple of other sort of high school-oriented activities that I participated with sort of wound up in leadership roles as well. Did you go straight to university after high school? I did. There was a small liberal arts university in Winnipeg that I chose to go to. And in Manitoba, there was a trajectory where you could do two years of pre-med. Half your time was with some prerequisites and the other half of your time, courses of your choice. So I did that two-year track and then got into medical school and did my medical school in Manitoba. So when did you decide that you wanted to become a physician? You know, for my generation, it's sometimes tricky to decide as you reflect on it, was that really my true, true choice in love or were there some external pressures from parents and friends and all that stuff? And as I was younger, I used to think I probably got there more because of parental pressure. But as I've gotten older, I appreciate that, you know, I have a natural degree of altruism and a desire to care for people and help others. And probably my parents recognized that. So they were just trying to guide me in, in that direction. So at some point in late high school, and as I do my pre-med stuff, I realized that's probably a good way to go. And pursuing that two-year pre-medical program, I assume that was within the context in the Canadian system of most people having a four-year undergraduate experience? Yes. That was a big decision, I would imagine, to say, I'm going to forego four years of more general education and kind of truncate that undergraduate experience to two years. You know, there are times when I feel like that might have been the right decision, and there are other times when I wish, gosh, I should have taken that four years. I would have enjoyed taking more of a liberal arts kind of period of time, and not only from the academic side, but from the social side of it and just sort of all of those beauties of your early 20s. But I chose to go that rapid track route, and yeah, it saved me a little bit of time, but I'm not sure it saved me in terms of my personal growth and development. So if I was going to do it over, I'd do the four years. If you had those four years... What would you have picked up to study that you didn't get a chance to do? You know, it's interesting. I do well in the sciences and the math and all that sort of stuff, but probably would have preferred more in the way of the liberal arts and philosophy and a bit more in the way of sociology, those kinds of areas. I find myself 
to this day continue to be fascinated by people and what they do and how we behave as a society. And so philosophy, sociology probably would have been a track I would have followed. Through that accelerated experience of undergraduate and medical school, did you have much opportunity to pursue extracurricular activities? I maintained my athletics. I still swam competitively a little bit. And then as I transitioned off to swimming, I picked up running, which is so simple and easy to do. You just need a pair of running shoes and some simple clothing. And with the time pressures, that was sort of my outlet was that. You did a lot of running? I did a lot of running. At that stage, I wasn't into the heavy-duty marathoning stuff, but that was probably five, six times a week. Did you ever get into the marathoning type stuff? I did later in life. Did a few marathons and did a fair amount of half marathons and have pursued a number of endurance sports. I switched over to trail running as I got into adulthood, far preferred to being out on the trails. Then I dabbled in the triathlon arena for a while as well. Did the half Ironmans a couple of times and Having swum all through my teens and then was running for a good part of my adulthood, realized that triathlon would probably be fairly easy for me because, you know, most people can ride a bike too. So I went that route. Wow. It sounds like a lot of commitment over the years to provide the opportunity to pursue those endurance activities and such. What would you say were your primary motivations in dedicating the time to pursue those? Yeah, it's always an interesting question, isn't it? I think a part of it was just wanting to achieve certain goals. And then a part of it was some internal pride as a result of achieving those goals. But I also find and still do to this day, being out there running around on the trails or mountain biking, there's a certain amount of peace and inner harmony that shows up just by being closer to nature in that way. Among the medical specialties, what attracted you to surgery? Yeah, interestingly, you know, as I said, I was interested in philosophy and sociology and people behavior. So in my earlier clinical exposures, I thought psychiatry was going to be of some interest for me. And then I did my psychiatry rotations and realized that that really wasn't for me. Subsequently, right after my psychiatry rotations, I did a general surgery rotation as a student in a smaller town. It was like a one surgeon town, right? There was just something that clicked with surgery. It became much more of a tangible thought process. There was the recognition that, you know, you could make your diagnosis fairly quickly. You could decide what needed to be done. And then you got to do something about it in a tangible sort of a way. And I enjoyed that thought process and the abilities to affect a treatment plan, if you will. And then I recognized at that time as well that the patients were just so appreciative of what was being done. And so I enjoyed that patient type of interaction. And I think that experience was probably the main driver for me to choose that specialty. It just clicked in terms of my aptitudes and natural skill sets. Take us through your journey through surgical training from residency through fellowship in your chief year. It's interesting. So, you know, as I said earlier, one of my driving forces when I was growing up in Winnipeg was recognizing that something else was going on in other parts of the world. So as I finished out medical school, I was one of the relatively few in my class that decided to get the heck out of Dodge. So I interviewed around in the Canadian system and was fortunate to get matched at McGill and entered into the McGill surgery training. 
And the way that was set up at the time, in your first three years, actually, you were able to rotate through a variety of the different surgical specialties. So you got to do some neurosurgery and orthopedics and emergency medicine and plastic surgery, all the surgical stuff. And I found that very intriguing. I actually toyed with neurosurgery for a short bit, but then realized that that wasn't going to be mine And then we also, in that McGill system, it was a five-year program. The middle year was a lab year. And so I spent a year doing some research on a rat study, basically inducing colon cancer in 120 rats. And then I had a control series and was trying to manipulate their colonic flora to see if there was any changes. And that was an interesting experience and proved to myself that I really wasn't a lab scientist. But, you know, hey, it was a good experience. And then at that time, there was a connection between McGill and the University of Miami, of all places, for some reason. I think it just went back to a couple of chairmen kind of knew each other. And I felt that I was wanting a broader experience. And so I chose to go down to Miami as a fourth year. Did a fair amount of trauma surgery and some general surgery in that year, an ICU rotation, And then the surgical ICU guy, Joseph Veda, offered me a job to stay on as a fellow while I was still there. So I was a little bit out of turn, and the folks back at McGill said, okay, fine, stay down a second year. So I did a full fellowship in critical care with Joseph Veda and that whole team. At the time, Joe's program was probably the best one in the country for surgical critical care, so it was quite a privilege to be in that arena. And those two years were the mid-80s, right? So that was also the time of the cocaine wars in Miami. And so the amount of violence-related trauma that was coming in was pretty darned high. And there was some pretty weird stuff. We were at times processing 20 to 30 cases a day and operating on half of them, which is high volume. So as I finished up those two years, then I went back up to Montreal to do my chief year back in the McGill system to finish out. I got a job offer at the Leahy Clinic in Boston, but my wife needed to finish some of her own education. So I chose to stay in the Montreal area and did some junior faculty positions with a couple of McGill hospitals in the Montreal area. Before we visit your activities after training, I just wanted to explore a little bit about your training. You mentioned the remarkable environment in the mid-80s in Miami. I wonder if there's any reflections you have in comparing and contrasting the practice of medicine from the trauma and surgical critical care perspectives that you experienced at McGill in Montreal versus in Miami. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do so, and that'll kind of lead into why I stayed in Montreal initially, but then moved on. And the exposure in Miami was powerful. It wasn't just the volume of trauma that we saw and all that sort of stuff. It was important for me to just see the contrast in how the different healthcare systems and the delivery systems worked. The Canadian system even in the academic places such as McGill, very often it was still kind of a private practice orientation of the faculty. And as residents, you you participated in those practice environments. And you got some exposure to the intellectual and academic side of it. The McGill folks would probably take that as a harsh comment, but when you contrast it to 
what was going on in a place like Miami, which was a county-based system. I was at Jackson Memorial. And so there was really quite a larger, more eclectic catchment of patients. And you were more dependent on just what was coming in through that county-based system. Yet the academic approach of the faculty, to me, I felt was at a higher and different level than what I was seeing back in McGill. There was a lot more in the way of journal clubs and challenges to think academically and intellectually, to think about doing clinical research projects. And yeah, there was some of that back in the McGill system, but not to the same level. Interestingly, as I learned, however, I sort of minimized my Winnipeg, Manitoba experience, but it turns out that some of the very early adopters to trauma system development and ICU system development actually were in Winnipeg in the Canadian system, far more than some of the other cities in Canada. And so it was kind of a moment of pride for me because at that age, I thought, oh, I was just coming out of this little podunk city in the middle of Canada. But then to hear some of the names of the University of Manitoba faculty parlayed around in the Miami system in terms of ICU and trauma care was kind of a moment of pride, actually. But the two systems were markedly different. Catchment, a little bit more private practice oriented, a little bit more of a genteel population up in the McGill system, at least as I was getting exposed to at that point. And then this strong county-based system down in Miami and the intellectual approaches. And I remember even back at that time, not understanding, but appreciating that the economics of the two systems were significantly different. And there was much more attention, obviously, on how to run your finances in the healthcare system in the Miami side than there was up in the Canadian side. And that was confusing to me. And then just one other little quick anecdote, Jeff. It was also in Miami my first true experience in appreciating where healthcare leadership functioned. And it was as a ICU fellow, there was a bad trauma that came in in the middle of the night, needed to come out of the emergency department and come up into the ICU. And as typical of ICUs, they sort of look at who's already in and who we could transfer out so we could bring the bad one up. And so we did all of that. And I was functioning fairly independently as a fellow. And so the faculty who was on that week was Joe Savetta, actually. And boy, he reamed me out. He just reamed me out for bringing that sick patient up. And the reason he did was not because of bad clinical care, but he had wanted that patient to stay in the emergency department to put political pressure on the administration for them to appreciate how catastrophic it would be if a really, really sick patient stayed in an emergency department. And they were trying to address the issues of systems throughput from emergency room to the floors to the ICUs and on through. And so he was trying to provide an example case of what could potentially go wrong if we didn't have better throughput. Because on the ICU side, every time you're transferring someone out in the middle of the night, you're putting that transfer case at risk, right? And that's not fair to those cases either. So I remember thinking at the time, ooh, I got a little heat there, but (laughs) it was interesting. It is interesting, and it also begs the question, to what extent was the patient that you ultimately transferred to the ICU potentially going to be at risk if they remained in the ED, where resources might not have been the same for his critical status? My way of thinking at the time, and partly why this story has stuck with me, is if we had left that case down in the ED, 
that case would have died down there. And that was shocking to me. You know, So here I am getting reamed out from an administrative political perspective, and yet that case probably would have succumbed downstairs. So how do you look back upon that at this point, weighing you know, the imperatives as a physician leader within a healthcare organization to help the organization move forward versus you know, what could have been a fatal decision for this patient? Well, I often say, you know, that our healthcare industry is probably one of the most, if not the most, complex industry to work in. And these larger healthcare delivery systems have complex systems and processes in them. And even to this day, 40 years later almost, we're still dealing with some of the same issues. Emergency department overload, ICU throughput, all those sorts of things. And so collectively, we need to think through how can we contribute to improve those systems and processes. And I maintain that physicians and well-trained and experienced physician leaders actually have a better degree of insight on how to improve and change those systems and processes. And we have to figure out how to do that more than just hospital by hospital or practice by practice environment. And, you know, quite honestly, when you look at the statistics, we haven't made much progress, have we? The waste and inefficiency rates are still high. The major error rates are still high. We can't truly claim that we've got a high-quality, safe, high-efficient healthcare system. And so, actually, the onus is on us as physician leaders to some degree is not to complain about it, but to figure out how to help create the change. Yeah, absolutely. And one other question about your training, and that is the decision to focus on surgical critical care. Did that involve a certain extent a pivot away from operating in favor of managing post-operative care in critical patients? And if so, so what led you toward that orientation? Actually, the surgical career path of trauma surgery slash surgical critical care has been a well-recognized one. And the best place to do that is typically in academic settings or in places where there's high volumes. Oftentimes, as well, though, there's a component of emergency general surgery that goes along with that because the trauma surgeons are down in the emergency department a lot of the time. They have big presence there and everything. And actually, the discipline has evolved where inside of the world of surgery, it's now being called trauma and acute care surgery. So it's the trauma stuff, it's the emergency general surgery stuff, and it's the surgical ICU stuff. And the practices that are out there are usually organized so that the individuals in the practice rotate their time around. You'll spend some time on the surgical ICU doing that, then you'll spend your time doing your trauma and acute care surgery stuff. What I enjoyed about it, to better answer your question, on the surgery side, you just never knew what was coming in every day. And when something showed up, it was rapid decision-making. Is this patient actively trying to die on us or not? If they were trying to actively die, then it was, how do you get them up to the OR as fast as possible? And then when you're in the OR, it's, again, some rapid assessment, rapid thinking and decision-making and technical challenges all of that's very gratifying when you get a good survival ship out of it. And then on the ICU side of it, you know, that's team-based care. And you're taking some of those very, very sick patients and helping them survive. Some of the patients, yeah, they're post-op monitoring and less sick and all that sort of thing. You're waiting for something bad to happen. But for those other types of patients, and they don't have to be a trauma, you know, a ruptured abdominal aneurysm is a really sick case. There's a certain amount of gratification to work inside of a team and to really help those patients survive on through. So that combination of the surgical side, the ICU side, and dealing with all that high levels of 
acuity and the unpredictability of it, that's where the intellectual and the procedural satisfaction comes from. Yeah, it's interesting that you gravitated toward the team ethos as you describe. Even in the mid-80s, you found that a team-based care within the context of critical care medicine was well-represented. It was evolving. You know, multidisciplinary critical care kind of got its start in the late 70s, early 80s. But yeah, I was feeling it in that early 80s period. So after spending this very impactful time down in Miami, you went back to McGill, as you mentioned, for a chief year. Was that an optional year that you went back? No, I had done my fellowship training prior to finishing my residency. I had to go back and finish my residency. Got it. Okay. And then after the chief year, you left McGill, you left the mothership to join the medical staff of Lakeshore General, which is a McGill affiliate, becoming director of the ICU. What led to that position? There was two hospitals in the McGill system I worked with. The Lakeshore was where I did a fair amount, and it was just based on need. They didn't really have anybody who was looking after the ICU, so it fit my skill set, just coming out of Miami. And then as well, I just did regular old general surgery, which was interesting as well. And kind of gave me further insights to the Canadian system on the political and financial sides in terms of how was healthcare reimbursed in the Canadian or certainly in the Quebec system. And then how is it that the improvements of the healthcare delivery system were going to occur? It was interesting at the time in Quebec, the concern was the distribution of physicians and surgeons in the province. And so there was an incentive plan. If you went to certain outlying areas, you would get paid 125% of the fee schedule. If you stayed in the urban areas, you'd only get paid 70% of the fee schedule. Yet I chose to stay in Montreal and take my hit. And you had to do that for the first three years of your practice before you could get under the full fee schedule. So that was insightful. And then just trying to figure out in the ICU of these hospitals that I worked at, how are they getting paid? Where's the reimbursement coming from? You know, there was nothing in the way of monitoring how much physical resources were being consumed, like IVs and dressings and medications and all that stuff. So quite a contrast to what I had seen in Miami. I would imagine. And then in that role as director of the ICU, I mean, clearly you were assuming a leadership position with responsibility over the unit. Talk to us a little bit about having that leadership role at that stage of your career. What did you see as your primary imperatives within the context of that leadership position? And you know, where were your opportunities to succeed and where were some of your frustrations? You know, it was probably a bigger job than I was prepared for. But that happens a lot in healthcare. You know, hey, you're seemingly a nice person. You seem to do good clinical care. Congratulations, you got a new job. Mine just happened to be, okay, congratulations, you're the ICU director. And I was initially struggling with, okay, I've had all this high-power, high-performance ICU experience down in the States. And then I was in a hospital in the Montreal area that was far more traditional, far more conservative, not really used to sort of leading-edge critical care approaches. Several of the nursing folks were like 20 years in that ICU, not used to a lot of change. And a lot of the physicians and surgeons in that hospital, similarly, were conservative and not used to that sort of high-end, leading-edge. So trying to navigate and find the pace of change that could be navigated in an environment like that was a learning experience. It's not only to understand resource management, interpersonal skill development, just how to do change management in an environment that's fairly stuck in its ways. 
Sounds like a crash course in leadership. It was. It was. The next year after your year at Lakeshore, you crossed town to St. Mary's Hospital Center, another McGill affiliate. And then the next year, you went to Penn. Then two years later, to Georgia Baptist in Atlanta, where you stayed three years before heading to Yale New Haven Hospital, where you served as director of the surgical ICU for four years, and then to Wash U at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis as director of the trauma center for two years, followed then again by two years as chief of the Division of Trauma and Critical Care at the University of Massachusetts. So in a 15-year span, you were a faculty member with six different universities across five U.S. states and one Canadian province. That's quite an odyssey. Help us understand your approach to your career through those years. Well, some people would say I can't hold a job, right? So So the McGill side, I actually wound up working in both of those hospitals simultaneously. And so I wasn't bouncing around. And then as my wife at the time finished her education, I had recognized that the Canadian system was not at a stage of maturity which could support my skill set of high-end trauma, high-end surgical ICU. It was in part the financial structure in the Canadian system and how systems were supported. Not every province, let alone regional care inside of the cities across the country were even thinking about trauma care at that time. And organized ICUs were just here and there across the country. And at that time as well, there were only 16 medical schools. So if you were gonna do academia in Canada, you kind of picked your spot, you stayed in that place, and you waited for your turn. And part of the appeal of coming back down to the States was there's far more opportunity to do lateral moves and to progress in your career track just because of the number of academic centers, the number of different kinds of healthcare delivery systems. And so I chose to say, okay, well, let's go back to the States and try to get into that area. And so I was fortunate in getting into Penn Yet it was a bit of a culture clash for me because I had mentioned, you know, I recognized the difference between the McGill and the Miami systems. And then having spent a couple of years as junior faculty in a McGill kind of general surgery practice to go into the Penn system, hard, high-end academic productivity pressures. And as a young guy, it just didn't quite mesh for me. At the same time, and some of these decisions that you just described actually were related to my trying to run the dual careers with my wife as well. She was a PhD epidemiologist, and when we were at Penn, she was having a hard time finding some opportunity in the Penn system at that time. And so as I was recognizing, I'm just not quite fitting into this Penn system right now, She was looking at the CDC down in Atlanta to sort of think through, okay, how can she expand some of her own roots within the epidemiology world? So I wound up at this Georgia Baptist place, an MCG, Medical College of Georgia type of an affiliate. And it was actually a nice stop because that academic environment was a little bit more akin to what I had experienced in the Canadian environment. You know, a fairly heavy dose of private practice and some academia, great surgical training program. And I was able to get a lot of responsibility. I had good close affiliation with the emergency medicine group there. And at the time, that center was trying to rebuild its trauma program. So I came in to help do that. And we were running the only helicopter flight program in Atlanta at the time. 
even though we were in the shadows of Grady in Atlanta, we were still actually fairly busy from the trauma and the critical care perspective. So it was a good couple of years. My wife got to gain some great experience within the epidemiologic world of CDC. I was able to sort of regroup in terms of, okay, I'm down in the States. What's the environment that I really need to play in? After a couple of years, though, we realized that this Southeast is probably not for us and where we want to bring our kids up. And so we looked back into the Northeast. I was, again, fortunate to get into Yale, and my wife was able to get into the Yale system as well. So we went up there, and Yale was great. It was a great, great time. There were some leadership changes in the Department of Surgery at the time after I'd done my four or five years, and then I was recruited heavily to go over to Wash U. So we bundled up the family, went over to Wash U, and I was having a great time at Barnes Jewish, helping run their trauma center and all that kind of thing. My wife was doing okay, but really wasn't enjoying St. Louis. And so it was, again, this dual career clash that was setting us up in terms of trying to relocate back into the Northeast. And a good friend of mine from Yale days had taken over as chair of surgery at UMass, and so he recruited me hard to come back up there and do that. So those were those trajectories. Then as I was into that UMass system, it was a tough time for UMass at that time. My buddy only lasted about two years as chair of surgery, and all the folks that he recruited in, we all decided to leave. And I had come to a point where I was starting to think more about systems and processes and less about clinical care. So that's what precipitated that change at that point. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for taking us through that. It sounds complicated and somewhat disruptive time with so much change. And of course, managing two careers adds complexity. Just as you were getting to know an organization and its staff, it seemed that you were pivoting elsewhere. Do you feel that you were able to maximize your opportunities to build and grow under those circumstances at each step? Or you know, was the desire or need to move so compelling that you were accepting the possibility of not sort of seeing through on the opportunities at one place in order to get settled at the next? It's a tough balance to run there. And part of the benefit of being in the American system is you can do these lateral moves or you can progress in your academic career by making these lateral moves or progressive moves. And, you know, I had different titles and I had good progression of my academic seniority and all that stuff through those different moves. As I reflect back on it, I think, you know, it does take anybody the better part of two years to settle into a new place and be comfortable with what's going on. And some people argue you need to be at a place for five years before the institution really understands what you are, what you represent, and what your influences are. And yet, if you have a certain drive, a certain ambition, and you want to create some change, then sometimes it's just easier and better to make a move to what is perceived as the next best progression in that career trajectory. It does create some individual turmoil. It does create the dual career turmoil. And to some degree, it puts some pressure on your family, your kids and whatnot, and obviously friendships and all there. So it's a tough balance. 
Now, around the time that you were in St. Louis, you became involved in a number of advisory positions and on review panels for organizations such as UHC, the University Hospital System Consortium, an ad hoc EMTALA advisory panel for the GAO, the General Accountability Office of the U.S. government, and a member of several panels for the Joint Commission. This feels like an inflection point, pivoting to national service within national organizations and service of healthcare quality and safety from more traditional surgical and critical care organizations. Were you consciously pursuing this pivot or did it just sort of happen? A bit of both. Part of at least my perception of how an academic path goes is you got to be a good, strong clinician, you got to be a good, strong educator, you got to be a good, strong academic, and you got to get involved with your contributions back to your profession. And part of the contributions back to the profession are getting involved with the professional societies. Probably my most successful professional society involvement was with the Society of Critical Care Medicine. But I was equally getting involved in some of the different surgical societies. But then as I got some insights from that activity, I was beginning to recognize there is a bigger environment outside of the professional societies. And there's a bigger environment outside the delivery systems where kind of the machinery of healthcare occurs. And so as I was fortunate to get involved with a series of those different external advisory groups, as you suggest, it became more interesting for me to thinking about that track. And again, you know, trauma is a multidisciplinary area of surgery, but it's also very systems-oriented from pre-hospital care through the ED to the ICU to the OR to long-term care, and then there's violence prevention work and all those sorts of things. So I was beginning to think about systems. And similarly, in the ICU world, the ICU is a pivot point in any hospital, so it's all about the system. How do you get them up and through the OR, the ER, the different procedural areas, et cetera. And so I was finding myself thinking much more about systems and process change and recognizing there was that larger world outside of clinical delivery systems in healthcare as an industry. After 16 years in academia, you got off the train and became vice president and inaugural chief patient safety officer at the Joint Commission. How did you know that it was time for you to leave clinical medicine and academia at that point? It's a couple of different things. I was, as I said, just getting more and more interested in systems and processes. And I was starting to get a little bit tired of that clinical environment of trauma and critical care. I was on the cusp of becoming burnt out, as they say in this day and age. I was feeling it. I wasn't burnt out, but I wasn't as energized by the different cases. I remember, in particular, a couple of incidences where I was doing a, by all measures, great surgical case in the middle of the night. And I'm thinking, okay, been there, done that. Just wasn't giving me that real sense of satisfaction. Patient did fine. The residents were all fine. They didn't know what was going on inside of me, but I had felt that. And so I really didn't want to progress on and get myself fully burnt out. By that time, I was, again, getting more interest in the non-clinical environments that I was working at. And so I recognized, you know, for me to get to be personally happier and more satisfied, then I've got to choose another path. And that's kind of what led to that set of choices. Inaugural Chief Patient Safety Officer at the Joint Commission. Help us understand the nature of that role and why you believe you were selected for it. The Institute of Medicine had put out its pivotal documents back in 99 and 2000. It was all about to err as human and crossing the quality chasm. And 
As a result of those two pivotal documents, some of the main oversight agencies in different ways inside of healthcare decided, well, we better get serious about this stuff. And so the Joint Commission, being the dominant accreditation agency, said, okay, well, we should set up something in a formal way for patient safety. And I had done a little bit of advisory work through the ICU side of things with the Joint Commission and I guess I got a bit of a name for myself in that work. And as near as I know, I was the only one they interviewed at the time and brought me in. I mean, patient safety seems central to the mission of the Joint Commission. For an organization that was 54 years old at the beginning of your tenure, it seems surprising that you were the first patient safety officer at the Joint Commission. Surprised me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know. It's for any of us who have been privileged to sort of go through successful academic journeys and then to get involved with some of these other healthcare-oriented organizations inside the industry. And there's many of us that have run these tracks, but these organizations need physician leaders. Dennis O'Leary was a physician. He was the CEO of the Joint Commission at the time. And I think he recognized that if they were going to get serious about some of these things, needed to have clinically oriented individuals who knew what good quality care was and knew what the processes of care were all about. So I think that's a big part of why I was chosen. How did you find working for an organization like the Joint Commission after years of clinical practice in academia? You know, the trauma and critical care environment is shifting gradually, but during my generational time in that type of academic clinical world, It was very much kind of a command and control environment, right? You got to be the boss and you had these teams around you and all those sorts of things. And so to go into the Joint Commission, it was a bit of a culture shock because there were a large number of teams inside the organization. Many of them didn't really truly understand how clinical care was delivered and yet they were strongly committed individuals to the mission of what the Joint Commission was trying to accomplish. And so I had to be very adaptable. You know, the command and control stuff was not going to work. And so that's when I really started to appreciate, you know, if I'm going to succeed outside of my clinical environment, then I've got to adapt my own approach as a leader, as an individual, and really unlearn that 20 plus years of what med school and residency and my clinical work had taught me. Were there any strategies in particular that you might highlight that you found important to pursue in order to be able to be effective within the context of the culture that you just described? Yeah, you have to be able to really tie into your own sense of altruism and idealism as to why you would take on a job like that. And then be prepared to sit back and listen and learn the environment that you're working in. And then to adjust to that culture, that environment. And as you get that adjustment occurring, then begin to draw on your altruism and your idealism and interject your viewpoints in a fashion that is effective with communication. And so a lot of it is listening, learning, and then really trying to be a cooperative, collaborative team player in those types of environments. Because just because you got an MD after your name doesn't mean you're the boss. So you remained at the Joint Commission for three years. A little bit longer than that. Oh, okay. Four years? Yeah, four or five years, something like that, yeah. And after that, then you began a three-year period where you founded PBA Solutions 
Insight, serving as his president and CEO. During that time, he also was serving as senior patient safety advisor to the National Quality Forum and also served as the chief medical officer for GE Healthcare's patient safety organization. There's a lot to unpack there in all of that. Tell us first about PBA Solutions Insight. Why did you found it and what was its purpose? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think I'm one of many who, when they hit mid-career and they're sort of trying to sort through what a next stage is or what a next transformation is, one of the kind of almost reflexive sorts of approaches, well, I'll just set up my little consulting enterprise here, right? And let's see if I can make that thing grow. That was kind of the initiative for that. I enjoyed my time at the Joint Commission. We did not only the national accreditation work, but we did a lot of international stuff. And that's where the World Health Organization activity got active as well, because WHO, similar to the Joint Commission, it said, wow, gosh, we better pay attention to the safety stuff. So WHO was opening up a lot of that stuff. And many years doing that and gaining some insights, it gave me the sense that, okay, I've got a fairly good personal brand. I've got a good set of skills. Why don't I try this consulting thing? And so I opened that up, was fortunate to get started with the National Quality Forum and take on that patient safety advisory role. And then that nicely coincided with the federal government launching its patient safety organization of activity. And GE at the time decided, well, we should get into this PSO stuff. And just through the relationships that I had developed over time, I wound up being able to help them get that PSO stuff working. It was an interesting time. And what I appreciated is, one, I didn't think that the personal consulting business strategy was going to work for me. You just have to spend an awful lot of time marketing and pitching yourself. And the actual amount of work time is relatively low in the number of hours per year. But I had been fortunate and able to do those contracts with NQF and GE. The GE experience, large, multi-billion dollar international company, big footprint in healthcare. And yet I appreciated, hmm, I don't think they really understand healthcare which was disappointing. It's all about getting the devices into the industry and all that sort of thing. So I knew that that for-profit side of healthcare wasn't going to be for me either. And then the combination of exposures to Joint Commission, Joint Commission International, WHO, National Quality Forum at the time, and still is, National Quality Forum is heavily dependent on federal funding sources. So I wound up thinking, it's kind of cool doing all this policy development and implementation stuff, but none of those groups truly knew and understand the front line of healthcare. And I wanted to get into that gap zone between that front line and all that policy development and implementation stuff. It seems like within the context of all those roles that if anyone could be poised to really influence change by opening an organization's eyes to the realities of the front line of clinical care, as you just described, that you were there. You were primed to do it. Was it just that being one man with a huge organization and the inertia of culture that it was just so big to undertake? I mean, do you feel that you were able to make some lasting impact in these organizations by striving to expose them to the sensibilities of frontline clinical care? 
Yeah, I wish the impact had been larger and bigger, right? And there's many of us as physicians who've tried to transfer into some of these types of organizations. And most folks, I think, are similarly minded. They're altruistically driven. They want to create larger scale change and they're looking for leverage points in order to create some of that change. I've been very fortunate in terms of the trajectory that I've been able to go through. Do I wish I could have created larger changes in each of those places? Well, I made the change that I was able to during the time I was there. And others were then able to leverage what I had begun to put into place. And I think that's similar for other individuals who are physicians who go into these types of roles, whether it's governmental agencies or the for-profit sector or some of these other sectors like an accreditation group or the education hierarchy that's out there as well. So I think it's recognizing that you have an opportunity that's unique coming in as a physician with a leadership role to leverage it as best you can, but then to recognize that others are going to have to build on what you've left in place. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. And I think that it's also probably valuable to emphasize the other direction of impact. And that is by being exposed to organizations such as the ones you were a part of, by being exposed to high-performing individuals within those organizations who've committed their careers to the pursuit of the business that those organizations pursue, that you learn a great deal about other important actors within the context of healthcare industry and healthcare economics. And at some level, that will help to inform how you approach activities moving forward. Very well said yourself. And you're absolutely right. As we said a few minutes ago, my shock of initially arriving at the Joint Commission and realizing, gosh, I can't use this command and control stuff anymore, so i got to ditch that. But let me learn and watch and absorb how not only do these entities and the components of these entities work and function and operate, but how do the individuals inside of all of these different entities work and function and operate? And what can I learn from that? You know, I've had some mentors over time, but a lot of them don't even know they were mentoring me because I was just watching and observing and absorbing. So after almost 23 years of changing roles on the scale of every one to four years or so, you assumed your current role as the President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Association for Physician Leadership, or the AAPL, a position that you have now held for just over 10 years. Congratulations. It appears that you've found your professional home. (laughs) Tell us about the AAPL and what has kept you there for these past 10 years. I do shake my head from time to time as well and say, gosh, it's been 10 years, right? No, I think the combination of my experiences and aptitudes and skills wound up being a good match for this organization because it was at a nexus point as well. You know, I was fortunate to get through the search process and be chosen. The organization is almost 50 years old now, and the originating CEO actually was very innovative and creative in his own way for that generation, Roger Schenke. He started it out in Washington, but he wanted to golf, so he brought it down to Tampa. And for any healthcare professional organization to be either in D.C. or in Chicago was kind of an aberrant, right? Why would you choose Tampa? 
I mean, there's a few professional societies that are out and around in the different parts of the country, but most are in those two cities I just mentioned. But Roger then led the place for, gosh, 37 years or thereabouts and was very creative and innovative in evolving the organization. But the board really wanted the organization to be taken to its next level. And they had, as an organization, wound up focusing predominantly on mid-career docs who were going to want to do some type of management or administrative role in a hospital or healthcare delivery system. And as their original name implied, American College of Physician Executives, it was all about generating physician executives who were going to do those types of roles. The board had a sense that they needed and wanted to do more as an organization. So it, I think, was a good match with what they needed at the time and what I was able to bring to the organization. So it's been a real journey. What was it that the board articulated at that time that they were hoping to see as the progression and growth of the organization? It remains to this day, actually, Jeff, and that is how do we really leverage the benefits of physician leadership roles in healthcare so that we can improve healthcare? And how do we help physicians become those leaders and how do we help those physician leaders better help the organizations where they're working, whether it's inside of a healthcare delivery system or whether it's in other sectors of the industry overall? And so then how does the AAPL help physicians to realize their aspirations as leaders? Well, one of the things that I took in a totally different direction was not just staying focused on that physician executive. And actually, we did a little bit of focus work after I first started, and we realized that that term executive wasn't working anymore. In fact, it was working against us. And there's two disparaging ways that that was negative. One is, well, you've gone to the dark side if you're doing all that administrative stuff, right? You're not one of us. You're not a real doctor anymore. And the other was, you're clinically incompetent, so the only thing you can do is some type of administrative work. So both of those are very disparaging comments, right? And I don't agree with it. And so I stood back and said, you know, really, our profession is viewed very highly and respected by general society. So we have a lead profession we're privileged to be a part of. And so at some level, all physicians are leaders. And so what we've been trying to do is help the physician workforce better appreciate that they are leaders and then how do they better assume some of the skill sets to be those leaders. And you don't have to be in a formal titled role. Most physicians are not in formal titled roles, but they are viewed as leaders in a whole variety of different ways. And so that kind of led to the name change and the rebranding of the organization. And it's led to the diversification of all of our programs, products, and services so that we can better address how do we do physician leadership better. That's really a fascinating pivot, and it seems that in the prior incarnation with the focus on physician executives, it was probably about waiting for those physicians who heard the calling to come to the organization and to realize that calling through the empowerment that the organization provided. In the model that you just described, where a goal is to help physicians realize that they are all leaders it almost seems like it's reversed, that the organization then needs to reach out 
to the profession and needs to help physicians make that realization that they are leaders and that there's opportunities for them then to leverage and pursue and enhance their leadership capabilities. How does the AAPL reach out to the community to help physicians realize their role as leaders? Great insight on your part. For us to grow and expand our influence, it's not enough to do it one by one, member by member. It's really all about trying to also work within the different sectors of the industry. The obvious biggest sector that is relevant to your question is the clinical delivery environments, whether it's the physician practices themselves or whether it's hospitals and healthcare systems. Now, those of us that understand healthcare know and appreciate that the relationship between medical staff structure and the administrative structures of hospitals hasn't always been the healthiest, has it? And so we are currently in a generation, though, where more and more physicians are being employed by these hospitals and healthcare delivery systems. There still are the volunteer medical staff structures in many of these places, but I think Even in the 10 years I've been in this job, there's a much stronger market demand for having well-trained, experienced physician leaders in hospitals and healthcare delivery systems. And so many hospitals and delivery systems are beginning now to want to have this type of training and exposure and experience for the physicians in their environments. So we actually do an awful lot of institutional work. We call it our AAPL Solutions Program. And so we set up professional development initiatives inside of hospitals and delivery systems and practices all around the country. And that's from small critical access places to very large academic centers all around the country. And it's a combination of offering psychometric assessment tools that reflect our competencies that we've embraced for physician leaders. It's offering up all of the information resources that we have, which are a couple of journals, newsletters, books, and podcast series, etc. And then it's all the different types of educational programs that we have. And for those that are interested, then we try to get them through to our main credential, which is that Certified Physician Executive Credential, the CPE. Tell us a little bit about the CPE and how it is earned. Yeah, so it's quite a well-recognized credential in healthcare. A lot of universities have executive master's programs in different types of healthcare, yet the CPE credential is different than a master's. A lot of the master's programs out there are kind of theoretical, don't necessarily have a lot of practical experience, whereas our credential, it's 170-plus hours of coursework And a lot of it is far more oriented towards how do you really perform best inside of a healthcare system. And some of it is management sorts of things, finances, accounting, HR practices, and then other parts of it are all about how to be a better leader. A majority of those 170 hours of coursework hours are kind of dictated by our curricula strategy. Our curriculum is competency-based that embraces a variety of leadership skills that we think are important. And then it is sort of finished out with a very intensive three-and-a-half-day capstone weekend where folks come together It's a very detailed weekend where it's a combination of people developing their leadership philosophy, interacting with a group of cohorts to try and best learn what their skills are or aren't. 
How do they improve that? And then they as well have to articulate what their project is when they go back to their home institution and how is that project going to impact that institution. And to a person, to a person, that capstone weekend is transformative. It's just a privilege to watch them come out of that weekend and they are so energized to create the large-scale change and then there's good long-term relationships with these people because of that energy and that transformation that they go through so that cpe is a powerful tool it sounds like it now who teaches most of the double apl courses as a part of the cpe process yeah, we've got 85 plus different courses. Many of them are oriented towards, you know, this competency-based learning strategy. Not all of them are part of the CPE curriculum. And we have another track, which we call the fundamentals. That's a cluster of courses where for those individuals who don't necessarily want to get an extensive credential like the CPE, the fundamentals gives them some rudimentary skills to get them through kind of a core understanding of healthcare works and what some of the operational and leadership aspects are. So that's very popular. We always tease, you know, give a physician a textbook and a weekend and they'll come back on Monday and be an expert. So, <laughs> you know, some people like the fundamentals and then they feel that's enough for them. From the perspective of this educational process and even the transformative nature of the capstone, as you described, is this physicians teaching physicians? Is this folks who have more of a expertise in business as a primary domain? It's a mixture. You know, certainly some of them are physicians, physicians who have been CEOs in delivery systems. Some of them are financial experts who are going to teach us the financial stuff. So all of these so-called subject matter experts or advisors are experts in their own way. And they're very skilled, not only in the content that they're specialized in, but they're very skilled in terms of how they deliver that content. And we do it in a combination of ways. We do the traditional sort of live education sessions, but we have all of our content in the virtual online delivery mode as well. And then a certain percentage of those courses are done in a combination in the so-called facilitated online, where they're direct with the faculty for a period of time, and then they interact with their peers online, and then there's episodes of coursework that they have to participate, not unlike many universities do these days. You mentioned that, you know, the alternatives of master's programs such as MBAs or MHAs, MMMs can potentially be a bit more theoretical. One aspect of those programs is exposure to a diverse student body. How does the leadership training focused exclusively on physicians avoid an echo chamber effect that misses potential cross-disciplinary awareness and sensitivities? A couple of ways. Let me say at this moment, actually, while historically we've been all about physicians, we actually very much are aware and embrace the concept of interprofessional team-based care. And we very much embrace interprofessional leadership as well. There's a few different models out there, dyads and triads and different sorts. And we've collaborated and participated in a few different initiatives in that way. And we will continue to expand into that interprofessional leadership realm. But to answer your question, for those who are tracking hard in that CPE credential and the capstone, yeah, most of them are physicians, and they're very energized by being together with their peers. However, when we do our AAPL solutions programs at the institutional level, in those cohorts, many times, 20-25% of the individuals participating in those cohorts are not physicians. They're nurses, PAs, nurse practitioners, pharmacists sometimes, and other non-clinical administrators in some of those programs. And so... 
we'll need to continue to expand that interprofessional approach to leadership because very much so collaborative team-based care and team-based leadership is the direction that everybody's headed. We view the CPE as complementary to the master's programs. And it's not a replacement per se. And so for those that want to do a master's, so be it. But we have a lot of people who have master's degrees who come through and do our CPE, and they oftentimes will say, darn, I wished I'd have done this first, or I wished I'd done this instead of. And we embrace that. Uh, we'll get better at articulating the differences and the complementarity of it. But we also work with several universities who accept our coursework as prerequisites into their master's programs. And we have seven different master's programs that we're in partnership with universities on. And when you try to get those folks who enter that path to then come out with both a master's and a CPE. Now, with a pretty substantial cohort of individuals who have attained CPE and also are serving in major leadership roles, such as being CEOs and CMOs, how do you keep them engaged with the AAPL and growing as leaders? Well, the growing as leaders is important, right? The CPE or a master's, that's just formalized education. That doesn't mean you're finished with your career. And so a big part of our approaches these days is not only the information resource portfolio that we have and not only the educational portfolio, but it's building out that sense of community. And how do we provide ongoing value for them to be interacting with each other? Once you get your CPE, we have some criteria which you can then progress on and become a fellow of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And a lot of professional societies offer fellowships, but you got to earn yours with ours. It's not just a matter of paying your dues. And then in addition to that, we have a special community we call the Vanguard community, where one, it's the opportunity to give back and be mentors to those who are moving through. But probably more importantly, that's where they can get together at that more seasoned leader level and have more of that peer-to-peer -peer interactions and how do you address some of the complex problems that they're facing in their leadership roles. And so it's a very active community in a lot of different ways. And we're, like any association, continuing to look at how can we provide that service better. It's been interesting in my decade or so, when I first started, there wasn't much competition of other entities for AAPL. But in the last five, six years, there's a recognizable market demand for physician leadership. And so predictably, there's other types of offerings that are out there for physicians to get some leadership skills, MBAs or MMMs, whatever, being one such thing. But they still need a place to go and hang out, right? Where do the physician leaders go and hang out? Well, they should be hanging out with us, but there are other organizations as well. And, you know, American College of Healthcare Executives is one where people go to as well. I'm a member of ACAG and I'm part of their physician leadership group, et cetera. But I think the better organization, and this isn't just because I'm in the CEO role and proselytizing, I think the better organization still for physician leaders at this point in time is AAPL because of that peer-to-peer -peer interaction and that ability to keep on learning throughout your full career trajectory. Now, within the context of your role as leader of the AAPL, I'm interested in a little bit about the organization itself. How large is the organization? What is the makeup of the workforce? We have about 30 FTE, and we have a number of individual contractors as well. And so between the staff allotment and the contractors that we work, it approaches 50. 
And we've gone to become a virtual organization as a result of the pandemic, and I plan on keeping us that way for the moment. The benefit of that move is that as we have the usual attrition and staff turnover, we get to recruit on a national basis now. And so I would have to say the quality of our workforce at this point in time has never been stronger because we're able to do this recruitment on that national level. And, you know, we'll continue to grow. As you mentioned earlier, we've got members in 35 or 40 different countries. Now that the pandemic is maybe sort of settling down, not only will we do more in the interprofessional side of things, but we'll be doing more in the international side of things in order to grow and expand in that realm as well. That's interesting. And healthcare organizations differ substantially around the world. What primary differences and what commonalities do you see supporting successful physician leadership across regional or country-specific health systems? No, great question. Interestingly, across the world, there's maybe only about 12 or 14 different countries that have organizations similar to us. In those 12 or 14 countries, they tend to look at us as the group that's doing it best which is a privilege, quite honestly. And we have tried collaborating and sort of evolving physician leadership in a global sense in a variety of ways, but getting the resources together and trying to get everybody on the same page has proven to be a little bit tricky. So we wind up sharing the intellectual side of it, but not so much the operational side of it at this point in time. You know, healthcare is fairly similar around the world. People are people, diseases are diseases. The types of diseases in different parts of the world are slightly different. The culture and resources available are different in different parts of the world, obviously. But leadership is fairly similar, right? In many, many parts of the world, the physicians are still very much viewed as that lead driver of the healthcare system. And that's the nature of healthcare. It's that patient-physician relationship is so pivotal. That's the driver, and it remains the driver still in this country, right? That patient-physician relationship. And that's the same around the world. So leadership is very transferable, even though the resources and the approaches might be different country to country. So it's an exciting period, actually. That's terrific. And it's fantastic that you're able to bring the organization to an international impact. Within the context of your role as the leader of the AAPL, what are your primary roles? Do you play a major role in the operations of the organization? Are you more focused on strategy and market relationships, building programs? Tell us about that. Well, again, I mentioned the quality of our workforce is just the highest it's ever been. And I'm very privileged to have a leadership group with me who help kind of make sure that we're not only operationally doing well, but strategically we're doing well also. So we've got a superb COO, a superb CFO, a superb CIO, and that's my main team. And we meet every day for an hour to hour and a half, first thing in the day. How important that is, I cannot describe. Virtually every single meeting, there's important stuff that comes out of that, both at the operational level as well as the strategic level. Those folks then go on and work with our different directors and staff. I'd spend more of my time thinking about strategy, thought leadership, collaborations, and growth of the organization. But I stay closely tied to the operational piece because of that leadership group that we meet every day. And then obviously a big part of any CEO's job is managing the governance side of it and working with the board and making sure the board is on track with everything. And we're privileged to have an exceptional board as well. They're very strongly supportive of the strategic direction and our operational successes. And we keep that board 
board more on the strategic level and try to have them help us envision what's that next three to five years all about. Obviously, as a board, they need to have some fiscal oversight and some operational oversight, but we do that in a very streamlined and effective way. Now, for your daily meetings with the chief operating officer, the CFO and CIO, do you typically have an agenda going into every one of those meetings, or is it a little more informal? It's a little more informal, and we like it that way because we're always surprised at what comes up every day. It's a combination of, well, darn, here's this hot-breaking topic. What are we going to do about it, and how are we going to address it, versus kind of me asking some of those open-ended questions. Where are we on this? And then as we have the dialogue, it's a very rich conversation. In my own leadership style, I rely on that rich conversation to help make some of the decisions. And they don't have any hesitancy of pushing back on me, telling me, Peter, you're full of it. Just, you know, aren't you listening to us, guy? It's a privilege, actually. I've never been in a leadership group as strong as this one. You mentioned about your leadership style, and you talked about earlier the command and control world of general surgery. At this point, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, it's interesting. When we solicit for new board members, we ask them for a declaration of intent and purpose, and we ask them that question, what's your leadership style? And it's always interesting because people try to put it into one category, and I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. I think contemporary leadership is really about being flexible and being adaptive to what you're working with, whether it's the people you're working with or the situation you're working with or the environment you're working with. So I think overall, it's a collaborative approach that's very much focused upon transformation. And how do you transform the individual approaches inside your organization and how do you transform the organization at the same time? You have written on the superior performance of physician-led organizations. Not all physician leaders work in physician-led organizations. What competencies and approaches do you believe help to maximize a physician leader's influence within non-physician-led healthcare organizations? We haven't said this part yet, and yet we both know it. Physicians get no exposure through medical school or their residency training programs on leadership or management skills. And so we come out of our training with a certain implicit bias, if you will, to behaving autonomously and independently because we're used to being able to give the orders and do the command and control. And we have to recognize that. And we have to also recognize, however, that non-clinical leaders have a much different type of leadership development program. The other piece that's contrasting in there is if a young person has decided they want to go into administrative work inside of healthcare, you know, they'll do their undergrad degree, they may get their master's in something, but they're still into the workforce by their 25, right? By the time a physician starts thinking about doing leadership work and administrative, they've already finished 10, 12, 14 years of clinical training. They've spent five or eight years doing practice development, and then they say, okay, now I'm ready. And typically, you're close to 40, maybe 45. And now all of a sudden, you're coming in young as a leader at 40, 45, and you're going up people who have now got 25, 30, 40 years of experience that's different than yours. And so the other part of answering your question then is recognizing where we came from, but then recognize where they the non-clinical administrators have come from 
And then how do you reconcile the differences in style and approach? And reconciling that differences in style and approach and experience is not a headbutting session. <laughs> You're not going to win on that one. So it gets back to being collaborative and collegial and respectful. And quite honestly, we as physicians are not great at it, but demonstrating a healthy dose of humility in the process, because that's what drives the respect. How might physician leaders build influence within non-physician-led health systems? Recognizing that that organization is looking to you naturally as a leader. And that just comes from being able to say you're a physician. That's what society still does to the physicians overall. We respect the physician workforce. We respect physicians as a whole. We therefore are looking for good answers and good insights and good inputs from the physicians. However, in order to exert the influence as a physician inside a non-clinical environment, you've got to be listening hard. You've got to be learning hard as to what's going on in that place and what can you learn from all those other individuals and what their expertises are because their expertises are different than yours. And you may have to take a little bit more education or you may have to do some special learning to understand the environment you're in. You know, there's a lot of docs in the financial services sector, for example. Well, they didn't just get in there without learning a little bit about finances. And there's a lot of docs in big pharma or devices they didn't get in there without learning a little bit about supply chain or medical pharmaceutical biologies or something around manufacturing. So physicians in those types of roles are in respected roles. And so it's that combination of learning, listening, and then contributing in a way that is really helpful in collegial, collaborative fashion. Now, when you're thinking in particular about physicians who ascend to C-suite roles in healthcare. Are there any activities that you have found particularly effective beyond formal education and training? Yeah, it's not all just about education, is it? I often say that when you're a physician and you're starting to get that itch of wanting to create larger scale change, identify that itch for yourself and then sort of do a self-assessment, if you will, or get your peer group or your friends or your family to say, hey, look, I'm starting to think about this. What do you think about that as me doing it? We offer some psychometric assessment tools to help in that assessment as well. And sort of, you know, do an objective evaluation. I've got this itch, but what do I need to do to be able to scratch that itch. And then that often requires a little bit more education, but it actually also requires some experience. And the training wheels often can happen by just getting involved with some committees, maybe taking on a project inside of a committee or inside of an institution, or if it's your own practice environment, maybe take on the quality improvement or the performance improvement aspects of your practice and just sort of start trialing yourself and seeing if it's something you're interested in. At the same time, however, get some feedback while you're going along that track and say, hey, look, I think I'm doing a really good job. But tell me, am I or am I not, or what could I do better? That's mentorship, right? Not everybody needs a mentor. I know mentorship is a very popular thing to talk about these days, and it's very healthy. But there's formal and informal mentors, and we all identify what our influences are. So it's a stepwise progression. Unfortunately, as we teased a little bit earlier, oftentimes when you're in a healthcare system, hey, you're a good doc, patients love you, your peers love you, your outcomes seem to be good, congratulations, you're our new CMO. 
And it's like, oh, darn, now what do I do, you know? And so it's really a rapid uptake of a little bit of education, a lot of baptism by fire. And unfortunately, some of those people make it, some of those people don't. In your book, All Physicians Are Leaders, you impart many valuable perspectives. Among them is the importance of resilience. How can physician leaders instill resilience in those with whom they work? Yeah, you know... Resilience is a heavily used term these days, and I'll start first with physicians themselves. It's a little bit insulting to tell a physician, just be more resilient, right? Because they've already gone through all that education, that long startup phase. They've tried to get a relationship off the ground. They've got huge financial debt. They may or may not have young kids and all those sorts of things. So they're inherently resilient as a breed. So when you're dealing with physicians and you're trying to lead other physicians, recognize it for them and you know help them understand that you're already pretty resilient if folks are feeling frustrated or anxious or unsettled it's a matter of trying to help them begin to understand the why behind why they might be feeling unsettled or frustrated etc and then as a leader you can try to help them figure out the channels in order to ameliorate or subside some of that anxiety by getting engaged in creating the change. So to put it in a joint commission term, you got to do a little bit of sentinel event analysis there, right? What is it that's creating that anxiety or that frustration? And that exercise in itself is often very, very helpful for people to help redirect some of their pent-up frustration or anxieties or even burnout because they're already resilient people. They wouldn't be where they are already. Now, when you're dealing with non-physicians, you know, whether it's other clinicians like nurse practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, PAs, etc., you can still do a little bit of that too because those individuals are caring, committed, altruistic individuals. They're trying to create change. And so help them identify where some of their frustrations are coming and then help to redirect their energy to create the change that's needed and help them understand that. As you describe it, the engagement sounds very one-to-one and very individualistic. Are there approaches that a leader can take to a group to help build resilience in the group? You have to make those efforts as a leader. I do it even in my own organization. About every three, four months, I do a full round of one-on-ones with all our staff. We don't have to talk about much. We can just talk about the kids and what's going on down the neighborhood, those sorts of things. But more often, it's about our organization. It's about where they're at in our organization and what is it that I can help them with or what is it they can help me with. It is healthy, though, to have an identified peer group. There's a group of eight association CEOs. We meet every other week, sometimes once a month. And we just talk about what's going on in the association world. What are our issues? What can we do? And we're very open and sharing. I won't name those associations, but if you ticked off some primary healthcare associations in this world, it would be that group. And, you know, we're all facing the same things. So that peer grouping is critical in all of this. And then you have to deal with the introverts and the extroverts and all that sort of stuff. Help the introverts kind of identify each other and work together and then let the extroverts go off and have beers together and shoot darts or whatever they're going to do, you know. And so you can help them as a leader and help those environments. But spending that one-on-one time is very powerful. 
You know, particularly since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, healthcare workers have been under added stress. And this is compounded by what has been referred to as the great resignation. How do you and the AAPL advise physician leaders to navigate these choppy waters in the interest of stable physician organizations and individual physician well-being? That's the number one topic amongst this CEO peer group that I have. And when you follow the general industry, CEO literature and whatnot, it's their number one topic as well. And then, oh yeah, we're going to put them back in the office or not put them back in the office. But healthcare doesn't have that luxury. We got to be with the patients. We got to be in the environment where the patients are taken care of. Yet, you know, as a result of the pandemic, there's been incredible financial duress on the practices, on the delivery systems, and it has sort of shown a dichotomy. There have been some practices that have been very overworked as a result of that pandemic, and then there have been other practices that have been very underworked. And yet, As we know, the anxiety, the stress, the burnout rates were already high predating the pandemic. The pandemic has just made it worse. And so predictably, there are a lot of people who are going to take early retirement. They're going to try and change jobs. They may even want to change their career. And they may even want to get out of healthcare. And so those numbers are big. And I don't think any of us really have the true answers for that. What I often say, though, is ask yourself, what is it that drew you into this profession to begin with? And more often than not, it's that idealism and that altruism and that caring nature of wanting to help others. And so if there's another way to channel that, then try to find those. And don't just be reflexively oh, darn, let me go get a job in big pharma or let me go do something else because you still need to understand who you are, what you are, what your drivers are because otherwise you're just delaying and postponing some significant transformation for yourself. Now, having said that, probably one of the most popular books that we have on our shelves right now at AAPL is the 50 non-clinical job opportunities that you can take instead of being a doc. So so the exodus is out there, but that's creating further stress on those who are staying in the system, right? And so it comes back to your question about resilience and not just whining and complaining, but how to rechannel your frustrations in a constructive way. Yeah, and helping people reconnect with those passions that led them to want to pursue a career in clinical medicine. Because even though there are all those opportunities out there, non-clinical pathways, if everybody chose them, who would take care of the patients? Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Tell us a little bit about your family life. You have kids? I do. I have two girls. You know, like every parent will say, they're the best kids in the world, right? (laughs) (laughs) Do you get to spend much time with them? Like every parent, not as much as I would like, right? One's 30, one's 26. The older one has been doing some very special work. I don't yet quite understand what drew her to it, but she works with one of the larger nonprofits in the Massachusetts area. She's in Boston, and she went ahead and got her master's in social work, but she just loves her work in helping young girls, not young women, young girls who have been sexually trafficked. And she finds that very rewarding. So far, she's very much enjoying it. And I tease her sometimes, how did you wind up with that acute stuff? Because she likes that sort of emergency stuff. And then she says, well, it must be in the gene pool a little bit because of my own clinical background. But I could make her wretch if I just say the word blood and guts. So (laughs) she's not ready for healthcare, but she likes that early acute stuff. So she's found her channel. It's good. And the other one is more of the outdoorsy type. And she has wound up 
with an environmental studies degree and is out in Bozeman, Montana, and is enjoying herself as an environmental ecologist, as she calls it. And the National Science Foundation has a nationwide long-term 30-year project evaluating the environmental impact of global warming on this country. And whenever she starts to complain about her commute, I tell her to be quiet because her commute is between Bozeman and the upper northwest corner of Yellowstone. And she goes into Yellowstone two, three times a week. <laughs> but she's enjoying it out there. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. Now, I understand that you have pursuits in the great outdoors as well with interest in overlanding. You mind telling us a little bit about what that's all about? Well, I mean, all through my adult life, I had a strong interest in the outdoors and reconnecting with nature and all that sort of stuff. So I did a lot of those outdoorsy types of activities, the mountaineering, the trail running that we mentioned, and a variety of others, mountain biking, etc. But as I get a little bit older, I'm still looking for other new and different ways to get some of that connectivity. And something that's become somewhat popular in the outdoorsy world in the last few years is this concept of overlanding. And that is basically building out a nice truck or sport utility vehicle or something like that so that you can get out into the off-grid areas and spend a lot of time out there self-supporting. So yeah, I've built out this Jeep Gladiator truck and have my rooftop tent and all my different things in order to be out there for a week or two at a time and just enjoy the great outdoors. What has been one of your most intriguing or exciting experiences overlanding in that vehicle? Well, most of it is North America-based. Some of the people that have more time and more resources will travel all over the world doing this overlanding thing and, you know, explore remote parts of Australia or Africa and all that sort of stuff. But for me, it's, for the moment, it's been a bit more in the Southwest and in the Northeast in different sorts of ways. Kind of on the schedule is to do what's called the Trans-America Trail or the TAT. And that's an off-grid kind of trail that goes, as the name implies, from the East Coast through to the West Coast. And then there's a whole bunch of similar stuff where you can go all the way to the top in Alaska and Canada and then follow down all through the western part of Canada, United States, go through Mexico and Baja, and then you can shift into Central South America and get yourself all the way down to the bottom of South America. So that's on the horizon. Sounds amazing. So are you typically on some kind of a rudimentary road, or in some cases it's just there's no road, I see the horizon, and that's where I'm driving? A bit of both. Most of the time you're on some rudimentary road because you don't want to be negatively impacting the environment by just tearing across the mountain tundra, per se. But there are times when nobody's been there before. What advice would you offer a young physician who's inspired by your journey and would like to pursue leadership? Well, first off, I'd be very privileged. But, you know, I think a big, big issue is to get to know yourself as best you can but recognize every decade that passes in our lives, we still don't know truly who we are, but tap into that altruism that got you here in the first place. And then if you are having some of that ambition to create larger scale change and you've got the energy and the motivation to get involved, get engaged, then just recognize it and tap into it. But it's not enough anymore to just say, hey, I'm a doc, I'm here. You really need to seek out a little bit of additional education. You really need to seek out some experiences and then work with your friends, your family, a mentor, get involved with groups like ours to then begin to think through what your career trajectory might become. But it's 
unpredictable as well. When I was a young person, did I ever think I was going to be the CEO of a professional association? Absolutely not. You know, it was never on my horizon. So recognize the opportunities as they present themselves and don't be scared to jump into those opportunities. Be prepared for a little failure from time to time, but you know, most of the time it's a pretty exciting journey. Well said. Well, Dr. Peter Angood, your career, your journey has really been a unique one and still ongoing. And it's so rewarding to hear about how you've landed where you are and that you are at a place where you're empowering so many physicians to be effective as leaders with that central focus of that passion on care and altruism and why people became a physician. It's marvelous that you have the platform that you do. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your perspectives with us today on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you. It's been a privilege to be here, and you know our conversation has been terrific. So thank you so much. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast. To Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.